Well, I wonder how many of you have ever heard the saying, not all who wander are lost. Raise your hand if you've heard that saying. Oh, good. Okay, so most of you have heard it. Well, I remember the first time I saw that saying, it was actually on a bumper sticker on the back of an old VW bus growing up in Santa Cruz, California, right? And, and that bumper sticker on the back of that bus, right, like something straight out of that 70s show, right, captured it all right there, namely that life is about the journey, not the destination, right? Get off the beaten path, follow the road less traveled. It's become sort of a rallying cry for a more nomadic, a, a more bohemian way of life. So throw off the conventional constraints of the nine-to-five job, of, of the house and the family that can tie you down, right? Go wander the world, live a little, explore, maybe discover yourself in the process. For not all who wander are lost. Well, what do you think? Is life just about the journey? Is there no destination at the end? Or are our lives headed somewhere? Is there, in fact, for each one of us, a destination at the end of the road? And if there is, friend, how do you know that you'll make it? How do you know that you'll arrive safely to that destination and not be lost somewhere along the way? Now, perhaps this morning you've come in and you honestly feel a bit lost, Maybe you feel as if your life this morning is drifting aimlessly about. You're looking for direction. Maybe you're looking for guidance. Friend, if that's you, the good news is that this morning I have just the book for you. It's the Old Testament book of Numbers. So let me invite you to turn there now, the book of Numbers. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, don't fret. One thing you can always do, go right back to the table of contents. Feel no embarrassment. You're going to find it there, the fourth book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then fourthly, Numbers. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, also no worries. We provide Bibles in the seatbacks before you. They're red. You can find Numbers beginning, I believe, on page 108. And if you don't happen to own a Bible, but you're here with us, let me just encourage you to take that Bible with you. Let that be our gift to you. We would love for nothing more than for you to go home and read that Bible and then come back next week as we continue in the book of Numbers. Now, I recognize that when I say numbers, for some of you, eyes begin to roll back in your head. You're already grabbing for your phone. You wish you had a pillow. Some of you are looking at your watch, and you're like, it's not too late to get to cross. All right, see the 11 o'clock service, maybe? You're thinking there are better ways that you could be using your time because Numbers is one of those books where Bible reading plans go to die, right? Numbers is part of the flyover district. It's what we skip over often in our Bible reading. And I'm going to guess that many of you haven't read Numbers or maybe haven't read all of Numbers. I'm going to guess many of you have not heard many sermons on Numbers. And I'm curious how many of you have actually heard a whole sermon series on Numbers. Just raise your hand. That's what I thought. Yeah, well, here we are. Oh, wait, one. Bear, you heard one? Well, Bear, excellent. You can give me some instruction as we go through it. But as I thought for the most of us, myself included, this is a new journey. It is a new adventure for us all. 
Uh, now, maybe the challenge we have with numbers begins with its name. Is it a book for mathematicians, accountants? Right? That's not too exciting. I mean, maybe some of us have seen the movie. Ben Affleck tries to heroically make accountants cool. But apart from that, accounting doesn't exactly stir the soul. But the book gets its name aptly from two numberings in chapter 1, which we'll think about this morning, and then on in chapter 26. That's where we get the English name for the book. But interestingly enough, the Hebrew name for this book is actually in the wilderness. And it comes right from the opening line of the book. And perhaps that title, In the Wilderness, would better appeal to our Fayette Chill community. I don't know. But in some ways, it is actually a more fitting title because Numbers really picks up where Exodus left off. So in the book of Exodus, God has miraculously delivered his people out of Egypt in order to draw near to his people. And now here with Exodus, at the end of that, we get into Numbers. Numbers recounts really the 40-year period of Israel's history of, of wandering in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And it is, admittedly, if you've read through it at all, it's a peculiar book in some ways. There's not always a clear structure or plot line. It doesn't actually even move chronologically, but it jumps around a little bit. Grammatically, it actually begins mid-sentence. So it just, it picks up, and it's as if we expect to understand what's come right before. And it ends somewhat anticlimactically with this debate about some orphaned widows, and, or daughters rather, and some land allotments. Now, it covers 40 years, but the vast majority of the book is actually interested in the first year of what happens in those wanderings and in the final year. There's actually very little about the 38 years in between. And it ends somewhat painfully, tragically, circularly where it began. It ends, and they're still in the wilderness. Now, from a distance, a book like this seemingly has very little to do with us. All the names... All the seeming monotonous detail we'll find, right? Apart from military historians, does anyone really care about how Israel camped, right, as a military? Yet the Apostle Paul thinks otherwise. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he highlights some of the events and numbers, and this is what he says. Now these things happened to them, Israel, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul says Numbers is for us. This book is for us. Because it's written to a people between the ages. Right? They've been redeemed from slavery. And yet there are people still waiting to enter into the promised land. So capture this. They, they live in between the time of redemption and rest. Of salvation and consummation, of conversion and heaven. Friends, does that sound familiar at all? And along the way, what do they do? They encounter many trials and temptations. It often feels like as a nation, as a people, they're going nowhere, right? They're painfully walking in circles. They're left asking often, what's the point of it all? Will this ever end? Will we ever arrive? Will we make it home? Friends, do you ever find yourself asking those very questions? If so, this book, as Paul says, is for you. Now, one last thing we're going to be covering as we walk through this book, two, maybe three chapters at a time. So I'm not going to be able to read all of it. At times, you're going to be grateful for that. 
But it will be helpful for you if you read in advance. It's one of the reasons we provide these sermon cards for you so that you know what's coming. You can anticipate, read. These sermon cards aren't as a reminder to me so I don't forget what I'm preaching. They're there to help with your hearing so that you can get the most out of these messages. So take advantage of it. And listen, most of these chapters, right, these weeks, take maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes to read tops. So not too much of a commitment to aid in your hearing. All right, so this morning we're in chapters 1 and 2. Let's get a bird's eye view of chapters 1 and 2 first. So in chapter 1, if you look down, you can see right on the outset, Moses is to take a census of the nation. Chapter 1, verse 2, take a census of all the congregation of the people. And Moses is to do that family by family, clan by clan, tribe by tribe, beginning with the tribe of Reuben, And that's described in verse 20, and then Simeon in verse 22, and then Gad in verse 24, and so on. Each tribe meticulously counted, minus one tribe, the Levites. And we're going to see later in chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, that the Levites have a different purpose. But that's all chapter 1, basically a lot of counting. And then in chapter 2, we're given the detailed history and instruction of how were they to camp by tribe. So whose tent goes where around the camp and so forth? And correspondingly, how are they to march in procession? Now, this tedious counting of heads and camp arrangements, right? That's admittedly, if you're going to start a book, that's not a great literary hook. That's not maybe the most appealing way. It's a perhaps strange way to open up a book. But here's what I think is already being illustrated for us. God's people stand with him and gather around him. I think if there's a main point, a main lesson, a main idea, if you will, it's right there. God's people stand with him and gather around him. And we're going to take, break that sentence down, and that's going to be our two points. Plain and simple. First, stand with God And second, gather around God. So first, let's think, stand with God. Stand with God. So verse 1 sets the stage. We read in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So we'll stop right there. And it's worth noting, the temptation is to run right over those opening words, the Lord spoke. And perhaps because we come across that expression or something like it over 150 times just in the book of Numbers. But friends, that's a wonderful thing to never take for granted. That God speaks. That he's not silent. That God doesn't leave us groping and guessing. That he graciously, no, he opens his mouth and he communicates with his people. Salvation begins with a speaking God. And he's speaking, notice, to to Moses. Remember, who's not a man exactly in his prime, right? He's an octogenarian. He's an old man, stammering tongue. Maybe more Elmer Fudd than like Mel Gibson and the Patriot, right? That's not the right image to have of Moses. And I don't mean that Moses is comical. I don't mean to imply that in any way. Rather, that Moses is not exactly the man we would have selected for this job to lead his people out. But God selected him expressly for the purpose of making clear to the people that he, the Lord, would be the one who would do the redeeming. Moses would merely be the instrument. And where are they? 
in the wilderness of Sinai. So if you remember back in Exodus, what do we call Exodus? Wilderness University, Wilderness U, that's where they are. They're right back there. The wilderness will be the school for God's people. It will be where they learn some of their hardest lessons. It's where they're going to be humbled in some of their greatest ways. The wilderness is going to expose them, test them, try them. It will reveal what they're made of and who they trust in. And it all happens at the beginning here, right in the tent of meeting, which is another way of just saying the tabernacle, this portable tent where God dwelled with his people. In fact, much of Numbers 1 to 9 surrounds the tabernacle, God's presence with his people. And when is it? It's basically a day, a month, and a year after being delivered out of Egypt. So if you were to go back to Exodus and do the math, it took about three months to get out of Exodus and to Mount Sinai. And then there at Mount Sinai, what did we have? The giving of the law. And then you sadly, tragically had Israel's rebellion there at the foot of the mountain with the golden calf. And then you had the restitution and all the instructions for the building of the ark and the tabernacle and the tent and the curtains and the bronze altar, all of that instruction. And then all of the construction took about nine months. And so... You take those nine months and the three months it took to get to Mount Sinai. It's now been basically one year since the Lord delivered the people from Egypt. And now they are here one month after the erection of the tabernacle. And Israel is finally ready to enter into the promised land, right? Let's go. Let's get after it. Only we learn they're going to have to fight for it. Friends, that's what the census was all about. They're to take a census of the people, chapter 1, verse 3, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who were able to go to war. God said, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. Now, we're somewhat familiar with things like a national census, right? So we just finished a big census in 2020. Right? Congress, according to our own constitution, I think it's like section 1, article 2, says that every 10 years, right, Congress is to take a census of the nation. And for what purpose do they do that? Well, ostensibly, it's in part for representation. So, right, so what states get how many representatives in the House of Representatives? It is for that, but it is also, if you look at the constitution, though they don't talk a lot about it, it's also about taxation. It's all about who can be taxed as well. Which frankly explains why I think a lot of people in Arkansas don't like to be counted. So some of you will not know this, but Daniel Schrift volunteered um, to be a census counter during the census. And uh, he can tell you that Arkansas is rather low on sort of the counting metric of the people who try to dodge the census. And he'll tell you that there are some back roads you don't want to drive down up these narrow, dark, dirt roads, and you don't really want to walk to the front door and knock and say, I'm here with the federal government. <laughs> you might get shot. Well, friends, Moses had already done a census back in Exodus 30, and that census actually was about taxation for the building of the tabernacle. But this census was about conscription, which is to say it was about a call to military duty. It was a national draft. That's what this census is. And to assist in the work, we see really in verses 4 to 15 how each tribe is going to have one individual that's going to oversee the counting of the tribe. And so when the time you get to chapter 1, verse 20, the counting begins. 
And we read chapter 1, verse 20. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Then Simeon, verse 22, of the people of Simeon, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, those of them who were listed according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Simeon, were 59,300. And you can understand why, after reading this for a few minutes, folks wear down. Because this language is repeated with some monotonous regularity, another ten times. And friends, papyrus, the kind of material that scrolls like numbers were originally written on, papyrus was expensive, which just begs the question, why then all this monotonous repetition? It would have been a lot simpler and cheaper to say, Reuben, you know, X, Simeon, Y, Gad, Z, just list the numbers. Why go through all this repetition of house by house, clan by clan, according to whoever, da-da-da-da-da? Well, friends, part of what's being driven home is it's to make clear that everything that was done in this census was done exactly according to the Lord's command. Every tribe. Every man was counted. Now, draft dodgers have historically been a problem in the U.S., but part of what we're seeing is not now, not here in Israel's life. Everyone would step forward. Everyone would stand and be counted. Everyone would contribute. So just good question to ask Christian this morning what about you have you stood and been counted I don't mean by that walking an aisle but have you committed yourself to God's people formally visibly purposefully in order to play a part to have a role part of what we're seeing is every member of God's community was to be a soldier, and every soldier had something to do. And there's a war. There's a war that's being fought, and it's a holy war more than it is ever a culture war. And it's not against, on this side of the cross, Ephesians 6.12, it's not against flesh and blood. It is a spiritual war. It is a war against sin, the sin that starts not out there, but right in here, in our own hearts and in our own midst. Now, sometimes we're tempted to think that the work of God's people is reserved for just a few, right? It's reserved for maybe for pastors, for church leaders, maybe some very gifted lay volunteers, perhaps. But the work of God's people is the job of all of God's people. That's what Numbers 1 is helping us to see. That the work of God's people is actually the job of all of God's people. Which means if you're a Christian, you're to stand up and be counted. Because if you're not counted here at this point, then you had no role in what was to come. You had no place in the promised land. 
There was no inheritance for you. Now, you know, when it comes to the church, it can be easy for us to think like consumers, right? The church's job is to minister to me. It's to offer a smorgasbord of of programs and events and activities that maybe suit my own preferences. But friends, a text like this challenges us as Christians to think about God's community more as a provider. To first stand up and say, you know what, you can count on me. Right? Count me in. I am here to get to work. I'm here to give. I'm here to support. I'm here to love and to labor alongside you. Right? You can count on me. And frankly, sometimes this is what we like about big churches. The fact that we actually can avoid doing that sometimes. Even in a church of UBC side, size, even churches especially that are larger. Because larger the church, right, the more you can kind of float in and out. And we can feel maybe a part of things without really having to commit to anything. It's a convenient way for us to do that. We can comfortably remain on the fringe and no one really has to depend upon us. Which is another way of saying we can do church and we can really just do the Christian life on our own terms and in our own way. And friends, if you're tempted at all by that, Again, let a text like this challenge you. You know, maybe you're a college student, maybe you're a grad student, maybe you're coming back sophomore year or senior year, and maybe you've actually treated the church a lot like that, kind of floated in and out, kept the church at arm's length, never really stood up and said, yeah, I'm going to commit, I'm here, I'm in. You have been, so to speak, a draft dodger. Right? Let this challenge you to come, not merely as a consumer, but as a provider and to be counted. Because when it comes to God's community, notice there are no fuzzy boundaries. No fuzzy boundaries to this community. Now I know in our culture, it's rude and disrespectful to draw hard boundaries. Many of us, like right, you talk about a border wall and what happens, everyone gets up in an uproar. We don't like drawing lines in the sand. What do we like to talk about, right? Inclusion. We like inclusion, not exclusion, If there is like a grave sin in the modern world, it is to do anything that could possibly make someone out there feel excluded on the outside. But when it comes to God's people, you just got to notice something. God means for it to be really clear who's in and who's out. God here is counting heads and taking names. We see it here. We're going to see it with the land allotments that are going to come as they enter into the promised land. We're going to see it in many of the lists and the genealogies of the Old and New Testament. We see it in the book of Acts where there are specific names and numbers of those who are, quote, added to the church. Acts 2.41, Acts 2.47, Acts 5.14. And even the way the Bible ends in Revelation with the Lamb's book of life where there is another book with a long list of names where it is very clear if you're in or you're out. You see, God's people were meant to be distinct, set apart from their world. Their communities were meant to have defined edges, clear boundaries, in, out. We like those fuzzy boundaries. You just don't find them clearly in the Scriptures because that's not how citizenship works. You know, last week our family came back from being out of the country. 
and uh, you have to come back through customs, through border patrol, and uh, you can imagine if the border patrol officer asked, are you a citizen, are you, pointing to me, are you a U.S. citizen, imagine if I would have responded something like, you know, sort of, mostly, I mean, I usually identify as a U.S. citizen, I mean, kind of depending, but yeah, I think most of the time, right, kind of doesn't cut it when you're trying to cross a border, right? They want a passport. They want to know definitively, are you a U.S. citizen? Yes or no? Are we going to let you in? Are we going to keep you out? Friends, even more with citizenship in God's kingdom, it is meant to be clear. Friends, that's what baptism is about. That's what we're going to be celebrating even again later this morning, right? When a Christian goes public with their faith, they step out of the world and they step into the church, It's part of what the Lord's Supper is about, defining who is and who is not a part of God's people. It's why things like church membership matter, right? Church membership isn't simply about a name on a roll. Church membership is meant to point to whether or not you are on God's heavenly roll. That's what it's getting at. God's people are meant to be distinct and defined And notice that God alone had the authority to call for this numbering, to enlist a draft. Now, you may have wondered, what was up with that reading earlier in the service with David and being incited and then this this census and then there's this great judgment? Well, why all that? In ancient times, friends, a man only had the right to count or number what belonged to him. And Israel did not belong to David, but to the Lord. Right? We are his, and we've been bought with a price. War would be God's prerogative, not Israel's. They were to wage it only and solely on God's terms at his command, which is why when David does it, right, it's sin. Here, he's instructing Moses to do it. And when the counting was complete, Just one thing to note, the tribe of Joseph, because since the tribe of Levites would be separated, the 12 tribes goes down to 11, the tribe of Joseph would be split in two, Ephraim and Benjamin, that would bring us back to 12, and it was all done, it's an army. I mean, look forward, chapter 1, verse 45, jump all the way there, chapter 1, verse 45. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. Friends, in modern terms, that would be the seventh largest standing army in the world. And if you factor in those are just the men above 20, you add women and children, Israel at this point is some like 2 million strong. So we say numbers never lie. Not only are we seeing here how God's people were faithful to stand up and be counted, but we're seeing how God had been faithful to make his people fruitful. We're seeing that here as well. As he promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, 5, look toward heaven, number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Right, from one man to a people over 2 million strong, and an army of over 600,000. Friends, God is faithful to his promises. First, stand with God. But second, we see we're to gather around God. Second thing we see, we're to gather around God. 
And that's really what 147, chapter 1, verse 47, all the way through the end of chapter 2 is all about. It's what it's all about. God's people orienting themselves and really gathering themselves around God. So we pick up chapter 1, verse 47. Let's pick this up. But the Levites, right, one of the 12 tribes, were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They shall take care of it, and they shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is set out, is to set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp, and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. And thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. All right, so right there we're informed about that missing tribe of Levi, right? They're not counted in the census. Their job was not to go off to war, but to stay back and guard the tabernacle. Again, the tabernacle being this portable temple of God's dwelling, it would travel with the people. And notice verse 53, chapter 1, that the Levites would camp around the tabernacle, and they would keep guard over it. So we assume the Levites are to guard the tabernacle, Kind of like, you know, soldiers guard, so to speak, Buckingham Palace. I know they look more like figureheads, but I mean, in theory, right, they're there. They guard Buckingham Palace or the armed guards at the White House who are all there. Many of them you don't see until someone jumps a fence and then you see all of them, right? They're there. They're there to guard because you carefully guard something that's precious. You carefully guard something of great value. Right? It's, we put valuables in safes. It's why some of us have alarm systems in our homes. It's why Fort Knox, right, which houses America's, some of its, our most significant monetary assets, right, over 5,000 tons of gold, for example. It's why there in Fort Knox, there's a vault in a basement, right, a 250-ton door that keeps it behind in safety. It's why outside of Fort Knox, there is a military camp, Outside Fort Knox, it's why there are rumors that the site includes, what, electric fences and landmines and laser-triggered machine guns, apparently. And all that security is for the protection of what lies inside Fort Knox so that nobody would harm it or steal it. It highlights the vault's value. And we're tempted to think that's exactly what the Levites are there to do, right? Protect the ark from being stolen, the ark from being harmed. And in chapter 3, we're going to learn there are 22,000 Levites. Friends, that's quite the security detail. 22,000, right? President Vladimir Putin is rumored to have the largest security detail of any leader across the world, right? The FSO. No one really knows how many. But I'll guarantee you it's probably not 22,000 right outside his door. Again, that in part speaks to the value of the tabernacle. 
But here's the question, friends. Does the Lord need guarding? Or do the people of the Lord need to be guarded from the Lord? Does the Lord really need guarding? Think to 1 Samuel, think to Dagon, think of the ark. (laughs) Does the Lord need guarding? Or do the people need to be guarded from the Lord? Look again at verse 53. The Levites are to camp around the tabernacle so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. Huh. And look back one verse to verse 52. Look to the sentence right above verse 52, the end of verse 51. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Friends, that word outsider doesn't mean Gentile. It can be translated, as the CSB does, any unauthorized person. As in anyone Jew included who isn't authorized access, they shall be put to death. The Levites weren't there to protect the Lord. The Levites were there to protect the people from the Lord. That was their job. They were basically a 22,000 person army saying, warning Stand back, don't come any closer, lest you die. That was their function. Now, that's not all their function. We're going to hear more about it later. But the challenge of a text like this is it confronts so many notions we have about God, doesn't it? So we like to think of God as imminent, as near and close to us, as personal and gracious and compassionate towards us, And, you know, Nick did a wonderful job last week highlighting God's compassion, his imminence, his closeness with his people from Philippians 1. And that's true, right? God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We know that to be true. But, friends, God is also transcendent. God is other. He's not like us. This God is holy. He is not a casual deity that we can just approach flippantly. And presumptuously, because if you do, you will die. Part of what's being pictured is that none of us naturally have access to God. None of us can naturally waltz into the presence of God. We don't come before him and sit with him and chill with him on a couch or in a coffee shop. All of us are unauthorized people. In our sin, we have chosen our way over God's way. We have made ourselves unauthorized people, outside people. Like our own spiritual parents, Adam and Eve. That's why they had to be put outside of Eden in their sin. And why we are outside of God's presence forbidden to return. In some ways, the Levites are just like the cherubim and the flaming sword back in Genesis 3, right, that stand between Adam and Eve and Eden. So the Levites are standing between the people and God, right? We've been barred from God's presence. And in our sin, to enter into God's presence is the end of us. That's it. The only way back, friends, is through a mediator. And we're going to see more next week that that's exactly the role that the Levites would play. Priests that would offer sacrifices that would mediate between a holy God and sinful humanity. And friends, every one of us here, we need such a mediator. And the wonderful news is that God has provided one for us in Jesus Christ. Right? Fully man 
In the words of John 1, Jesus is the one who tabernacled among us. Imminence, right? He dwelled personally, bodily with us. And yet this same Jesus was fully God. He was transcendent. He was without sin, which is why there are times when men and women would approach him and they would fall on their faces in fear of him. This Jesus, fully God and fully man, would take the sins of his people. He would bear them upon a cross. He would forgive them. He would redeem them. Three days later, by rising from the grave, conquering sin and death, and thus promising to deliver his people finally and fully, restoring them to God. That's the work Christ did as our mediator so that we can have access again to God and commune with God. And friend, if you have not trusted in Christ's work, repenting of your sins, placing your faith in him, you have no access to him. God is nothing but a fearful enemy. But in Christ, he is a loving, wonderful, beautiful, and joyous friend. And he can be yours by repenting of your sin and placing your faith in him. And for those that do, that have trusted in that mediatorial role, notice how now all of their lives, what, are to be oriented around God. That's what the rest of chapter 2 pictures. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. So notice everything is oriented here around the tabernacle. It's at the center. And then verses 3 to 9 of chapter 2 describe the three tribes that are going to camp on the east. And then verses 10 to 16, the three tribes that are going to camp on the south. Verses 18 to 24, the three tribes that camp on the west. And then verses 25 to 31, the last three tribes that camp on the north. So picture it. You've got concentric squares, right? You've got the tabernacle, the Levites, and then the 12 tribes organized around the camp. Friends, why the tabernacle at the center? It's because royal tents were always placed at the center of camps. Because that's where the king camped at the center. All of this to graphically depict the Lord is king of his people. He rules. Right? We orbit around him. God doesn't orbit around us. Again, picture it here. God amidst his people, God in the center of their community, the focal point of their lives and worship as they journey toward the promised land. Friends, does that sound like anything? Does that sound like the Christian life? That's just the way it still is with us and God. All that is true about us ought to be the God-centeredness of our lives, right? Decisions about school, about employment, about where we live, about how we work, about where we go to church, about our finances, even our sleep on Saturday night. All that speaks to whether or not we have God at the center of our lives. You know, many of us are starting new rhythms. My wife and I have been having this conversation. You can keep praying for us on that, by the way. That's a side note. We're having new conversations about new rhythms so, friend, think of one concrete way that you could better orient your life around God. Is it something as simple as just being faithful to get up in the morning and to commune with him through his word and in prayer? 
Something as simple as that. To make God the center of your day, the center of your life. Maybe is it to walk away from a relationship that has pulled you away and put you or another at the center of your life? Is it to maybe rethink how you're going to faithfully witness at work and share God more freely with coworkers? Or maybe even more basically, keeping God at the center of your life, the order and structure we've been thinking about, just getting to work on time, just being a faithful employee is God-centered worship. Is it something in your marriage you need to reorient? Something in your parenting maybe you need to reorient? Our personal lives are to be oriented around God. But not just that, our corporate worship is to be oriented around Him too, right? And the songs we sing and the prayers that we pray and how we read God's Word, how we hear it, all that we do, and to some of you as visitors, some of it I recognize will seem strange, all of you do is meant to focus on God Right, taking the spotlight off of us and onto him. But friends, that's the problem, right? Because that's what's hard. That's what's difficult. Because we like what? We like things to revolve around us. We like to put ourselves at the center of the camp. We want life and we want people to do our own bidding. Friend, the problem is you do that with your life, and at some point it will implode every single time. We were made to worship, not to be worshiped. We were made to gather around him. But notice something else about this arrangement. Notice the order of it. It's a perfect cube. The tribes on every side, three on the east, three on the south, three on the west, three on the north. God's presence at the center. Friend, does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you of a future city? Of a cube? that has gates with three tribes listed on the east, on the south, on the west, and of the north. It's exactly what's pictured in Revelation 21, the heavenly Jerusalem. Exactly what's pictured there. In Numbers 2, recognize we're already being given a foretaste of heaven. Not the heaven with ourselves at the center and our family and our favorite hobbies about. No, but a heaven where God is at the center and he is the focal point. And lastly, don't miss this. Don't miss where the tribes are placed. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. There on the east side, toward the sunrise, shall be Judah. Right, Those to camp on the east side, toward the sunrise, shall be the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies, and then it goes on to talk about the chief and his company. And then after that, we read of Issachar in verse 5 and his company. And then the tribe of Zebulun in verse 7. So Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. Moses starts here, friends, because the east is the place of honor. It's the place of honor. Notice verse 9, how they set out to march, right? The tribe in the east leads out in the march. They have pride of place. And friends, that's not what we would expect. We wouldn't expect Judah and Issachar and Zebulun in that place. Judah was not the firstborn of Israel. That was Reuben. He, Judah, and secondly, I should say, the, the son that was so cherished among the twelve, who was that? That was Joseph, right? Joseph was the one who had the coat, right? Many colors. He was the envy of all of his brothers. Joseph was the one born to Leah, the one whom Jacob, I'm sorry, Rachel, the one whom Jacob especially loved. Judah was not from Rachel. Judah was the son of Leah. 
the wife that was unloved and overlooked, the wife that was often rejected. Friends, in fact, all the tribes on the east and all the tribes of the south, the six tribes that are going to march out before the ark, they are all Leah's children. All six. All six would know the honor of leading out with the ark. Rachel's children would bring up the rear, coming after the ark. Friend, is there not a lesson for us even in this? For all those who feel overlooked by the world, marginalized by the world, rejected, often passed over, maybe passed by, even despised as Leah often was despised by Rachel. Part of what we're seeing here is that God sees and God takes notice. And in his new Jerusalem, he has a way of righting every wrong where the first will be last and the last will be first. And most beautifully, Leah's son Judah would have the preeminence. He would camp at the place of honor. Because friends, Bible, redemption, light, it all rises from the east. It's why, for example, in medieval churches, if you were to enter into them, many of the churches in Europe, you come in through the narthex, you come in through the west, and you're looking east, and you're looking down toward the altar, the chancel, and all that. That's on the east side. It's all pointing east. It's why old cemeteries, a lot of the gravestones are facing east because salvation, resurrection, life comes from the east, already being pictured through the tribe of Judah, who would arise, a king from the east, David the Lord Jesus Christ. So friend, I return to that opening question. Are all who wander lost? You know, that's a saying loved by young travelers traversing the globe, and perhaps it's their own way of shaking their fists at all of society's expectations and demands. But if you actually know that quote, you know where that quote comes from. It comes actually from Tolkien. It comes from the Fellowship of the Ring. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. You know, in numbers, it's often going to feel as in life, right? The pilgrim Christian wandering and stumbling their way through the wilderness, making little progress. It can feel like our lives are going nowhere. They're adrift. We're lost. We're left wondering, right, will this ever end? Will we ever arrive? Will we make it home? And part of what we're seeing is that God's people are those who stand with him and gather around him. For one day that light from the shadows shall spring and the crownless again shall be king and this king will return for his own and everyone in him will be brought home. Friends, will that be you? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray and we thank you for this book. Often overlooked, We confess even our own lives, perhaps. And yet, 
Your word, as always, contains treasures both new and old. And we pray that as we work through this book together, you would instruct, encourage, warn, and lift us up to Christ, we pray. In whose name we pray. Amen.